You're listening to the Glasgow Times, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishopbriggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. The National, Monday the 5th of October 2020. Covid Scotland hotspot fears as heat map reveals 23 areas at risk of virus surge by Jack Aitchison. A worrying trend in coronavirus cases in Scotland has been highlighted in a COVID calculator. Devised by Imperial College London, the tool predicts which parts of the country have the greatest probability of seeing coronavirus cases rise above 50 per 100,000, which it classes as a hotspot. When visited one month ago, only Glasgow and Western Bartonshire were calculated as being at risk of becoming a hotspot, sitting at an 83% and 54% chance respectively. Now, however, the map shows 11 local authorities in Scotland coloured in red, meaning they all have at least a 75% probability of having cases rise above 50 per 100,000 population. But the most worrying data on the map comes when looking at its calculations for over the next week. By October the 11th, 23 local authorities are deemed to be in the red category. The remaining areas, Inverclyde, Clackmannanshire, Perth and Kinross, Angus, Aberdeenshire, Murray, Highlands, Orkney and Shetland Islands have a hotspot probability of 45% or less. Speaking last month, lead researcher Professor Axel Gandhi from the Department of Mathematics at Imperial College London said, COVID-19 is, unfortunately, very much still with us, but we hope this will be a useful tool for local and national governments trying to bring hotspots under control. The website uses data on daily reported cases and weekly reported deaths and mathematics modelling to report a probability that a local authority will become a hotspot in the following week. The predictions do assume no change in current interventions, that's lockdowns, school closures and others, in a local authority, beyond those already taken about a week before the end of observations. A total of 758 new coronavirus cases were confirmed in Scotland during the past 24 hours. Sunday's figures from the Scottish Government showed no new deaths had been reported, but the number of people in hospital with recently confirmed coronavirus rose by 19 to 210. Of these, 22 people were in intensive care. Among the 758 new cases, 266 were in the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board area. NHS Lothian recorded 176 cases and there were 138 in NHS Lanarkshire. Across Scotland, the positive cases make up 12.1% of newly tested individuals. The rising numbers have sparked calls for a circuit break-style short but hard lockdown, as being implemented in Paris. Preston, whether he could rule out a circuit breaker lockdown this month, Deputy First Minister said, I cannot give you that absolute guarantee right now. By Jack Aitchison. From the National, date Monday the 5th of October 2020, from the sports section, Beth Potter loving life with her fetching new pal, Charlie. This article is an exclusive by Susan Egglestaff, sports writer. Beth Potter is in full agreement that a dog is man's and woman's best friend. 
28 year old admits she found much of the lockdown challenging, but there was one standout highlight for the triathlete. After looking for a dog for some time, Potter finally took the plunge and got a puppy. He's a working cocker called Charlie, she said. He's been a lifesaver during lockdown. I've always wanted a dog, but it's never been the right time. And then when we first heard about lockdown, I moved in with a friend for a few weeks who's got a dog, and she convinced me to go for it. He's brilliant. He's very docile and he's lovely. It's just so great having him at home. He runs with me at the weekend. He's been the best thing about lockdown for sure. The pandemic could not have hit the worst time for Potter. A triathlon session was literally days from, be- from beginning and so having talked our way through a full, full winter's training it was demoralising to say the least for everything to be thrown up in the air almost overnight. I loved training so that part was okay but I did find it very tough not to have anything on the horizon so it was a real mix of emotions every day, she said. I found it really hard. One minute I'll be fine and the next minute I'll find myself crying for no reason. It's definitely been one of the hardest things I've faced in my career. It's up there with a really crap injury. The uncertainty is so difficult. The lack of access to swimming pools has been the most challenging aspect of lockdown for Potter. The classic-born athlete has spent the majority of her sporting life in a lo- as a long-distance runner, representing GB at the 2016 Olympics, before switching to triathlon in 2017 and going on to represent Scotland as both a track and field athlete and a triathlete at Gold Coast in 2018, becoming the first Scott ever to be selected for two sports at the same Commonwealth Games. Of the three disciplines in triathlon, Potter freely admits swimming is her weakest, and so a whole summer out of the water was far from ideal, to put it mildly. Potter's first coronavirus outing was in early September in Hamburg, where she finished 21st, a performance she was dissatisfied with. Her next event is due to be a World Cup event in Italy in mid-October, which, Potter admits, she will only race it if she feels she's in shape to really compete. These high standards Potter sets for herself may take, make her life more difficult, but it is the same attitude that's helped her defy the odds time and time again throughout her career. Her switch from track and field to triathlon may be somewhat unusual, but last year, Potter proved an emphatic style her gamble had paid off. After only two years in the sport, she became a European champion and so that highlighted her potential despite taking up the event at a relatively advanced stage of her sporting career. However, within just a few months of that victory, Potter was hit with some devastating news. Despite her phenomenal rise to prominence in the sport, British triathlon announced they were withdrawing her funding, leaving the Scott feeling somewhat destitute. I took the criteria several times and yet I wasn't put in funding, she said. I felt like any other athlete in any other sport who had become European champion with a beer on funding. So that was a real ball. I was really upset about it for a while and they were reducing my age against me which I felt was really unfair. People get better at different times and my training age is completely different from my actual age because I've not been in the sport for that long. I've got the right attitude and I want to do this but it's hard not having the backup. I had several meetings with British Triathlon and they agreed to help me a little. It all took its toll though. I had thoughts of giving up. But then I decided to use it as motivation and wanted to prove them wrong. I believe I can do it, but it just helps me have people backing you. 
Despite the funding blow, Portugal are head down herself in excellent shape for this season, which was then cut disappointingly short. And so having battled through the past 12 months with few competitive appearances to speak of, already Porter's looking forward to another winter hard at it. I put in a big bulk of training last winter, which was great, but I don't want to put myself in the position of racing again if I feel I'm not ready, she said. I'd like to put in another big bulk of swimming over the winter. With the running, I have that race experience, but I just don't have that yet in triathlon, so there's still so much room to improve. An article with an exclusive by Susan Eaglestaff. The National. Monday the 5th of October 2020. Comment section. Brexit. Chlorinated chicken, you might not even know that it is chicken, by Heather Anderson. In April 2019, I did a wee film during the European election campaign, saying that everyone in Scotland was an EU national. Back then, wrenching Scotland out of the European Union against our will and without our consent meant that all of us would lose the right to work, study, retire and live in Europe as citizens. Now we are also losing the right to trade freely, support our farmers, protect our own welfare, environmental and safety standards and securely manage our own border. It turns out that taking back control actually meant Westminster taking back control from the devolved nations whilst abandoning our external borders controls. The UK government's actions risk the UK market being flooded with substandard products and potentially counterfeit and unsafe goods. We know Scotland needs around 800 customs officers to manage our borders and we only have a handful. We know the UK is declaring a need to recruit and train 50,000. Unfortunately, Michael Gove, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, didn't know that it takes a couple of years to train a customs officer, and we now only have a couple of months. Gove has finally admitted that 50% of trucks won't have the correct paperwork. Gove, of course, chose to blame UK road haulage and logistics companies for not being prepared. However, it's impossible to prepare when the UK government hasn't agreed what the correct paperwork is. We now know it's reasonable to expect a reduction of 80% in the flow rate of trucks and a two-day delay. In preparation, the UK has broken its own planning regulations to plough up hectares of prime arable land to create a massive concrete lorry park. We will have to endure the sight of lorries full of rotting food being parked on concreted fields which used to produce food. If ever there was a symbol for Brexit, that's it. But back to law-breaking. We all know the UK Internal Market Bill, passed by the Commons, transparently breaches international law, threatens the Good Friday Agreement and jeopardises trade deals with not just the EU but also the USA. This act fundamentally damages the UK's international reputation, credibility and standing in the world. That story understandably grabbed all the media attention. But there are even more incendiary devices in the bill. Infrastructure investment will be stolen and controlled by Westminster. Areas of devolved competency will be raided. Westminster is seizing the power to intervene in the realms of education, culture, sport, economic development and infrastructure. Control over what could be considered to be trade distorting subsidies can remove Scottish Government control over farming support. And while breaking all the rules, the UK government is also refusing to protect any safeguards. 
The Agriculture Bill is back at the Commons. The Lords asked MPs to consider an amendment committing the UK to maintain current standards. The Tories voted against this at the first reading and seem set to vote against it again. The Internal Market Bill enables business, not government, to set trading, safety, quality and production standards for goods, food and services. Businesses, whether they are based in the UK or not, will be able to claim discrimination whenever they have to meet a regulatory requirement, which they consider disadvantages them commercially. In this bill, labelling produce as Scottish can be contested as an additional and unnecessary cost. Trying to procure Scottish produce in preference to goods or fruit from another area is prohibited. It's difficult to see why free tuition fees can't be challenged as unfair. Protection from having to eat chlorinated chicken is removed. The UK won't have the clout to ban it, and the bill will make sure you won't know how the chicken was reared or packaged. You may not even be able to verify it's chicken. That's because all the rules change on January the 1st. World Trade Organisation rules don't require the same level of detail as EU rules. For example, there's no livestock traceability in the States, and even if the rules and standards were protected, there's nobody at the port to check what's in the container. The Johnson Cummings Gove Troika did indeed plan to take back control over the devolved nations. They see devolution as a mere irritant, not a democratic right. It's now clear that they also want to open up the whole of the UK market to deregulated trade. You just need to read the small print. We live in lawless times, and like principles, the rule of law is more essential when it's at risk of being usurped. Abiding by the rule of law will protect Scotland's future in Europe and internationally. We must maintain an internationally respected position in the midst of this madness. It will ensure we will win our legitimate independence. Heather Anderson is a farmer, an SNP councillor in the borders and a former MEP. The National, Monday the 5th of October 2020. Ian Blackford warns Margaret Ferrier, quit now or risk being forced out, by Angus Cochrane. Ian Blackford has piled pressure on Margaret Ferrier to resign as an MP after her rule-breaking trip to and from Westminster. The Rutherglen and Hamilton West representative has already been suspended by the SNP. If she refuses to stand down, she could face a recall petition, which could ultimately force a by-election if backed by at least 10% of her constituents. For that to happen, she would first need to be suspended from the Commons for at least 10 sitting days. Blackford has now called on Ferrier to do the honourable thing, or be faced with the prospect of being forced out. The SNP Westminster leader told The Telegraph, Margaret has to respect the fact there's been a breach of trust between her and the electorate. She has to preserve her own self-respect and dignity and do the honourable thing. A failure to resign on her own terms means she will face a parliamentary standards inquiry. Nobody knows where that will go, but she runs the risk of having her fate being taken out of her hands. Ferrier took a coronavirus test last Saturday after experiencing symptoms. Despite that, she then travelled to London by train on Monday and gave a speech in the Commons. When she received a positive test result that evening, she stayed in a hotel in London before heading back to Scotland by train. The MP misled her SNP colleagues by suggesting she was leaving Parliament early to visit a sick family member. 
Ferrier posted an apology on Twitter, saying there was no excuse for her actions. She's also referred herself to Catherine Stone, the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, and to the police. She's faced calls from several members of her own party to resign, including First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. So far, the MP has not responded publicly. Yesterday, Deputy First Minister John Swinney said the SNP have taken all the action they can. He did not disclose whether the SNP would back or lead a recall petition against Ferrier, insisting that was a decision for her constituents. The Speaker of the House of Commons is likely to condemn the Rutherglen and Hamilton West representative when Parliament reconvenes today. Lindsay Hoyle said over the weekend... How could somebody put us at risk? We cannot allow that. By Jack Aitchison. From the National, date Monday the 5th of October 2020. From the sports section, Gary McAllister on Rangers captain James Tavernier's wonderful technique from Sport Kicks. By Christopher Jack, Group Senior Sports Writer. Karen McAllister reckons James Tavenier's spot kick style is second to none after he made it 4 from 4 last term in the victory over Ross County. Tavenier slotted home from 12 yards after Cole Donaldson had brought down Alfredo Morelos as he knighted the 8th goal of the campaign. The right back has been in fine form for the chairs this term and assistant is. McAllister is pleased to see Tavernier hitting top gear once again. He said, It's phenomenal from a fullback. There was a period when he missed a couple and the penalties went away from him. I hit penalty kicks in my career. I also missed penalty kicks. But James's technique is superb, but second to none. He has now regained that confidence to go and put his laces through it. He has wonderful technique and is one of the best penalty kick takers I have seen. I'm very impressed. And that piece was by Christopher Jack. The National. Monday the 5th of October. Comment section. Margaret Ferrier's Covid trip was terrible, but here's why I still feel for her. By George Caravan. Being a member of the Westminster Parliament is a very lonely job especially if you're from the SNP. The weekly commute to spend four days wholly locked up in a damp, crumbling gentleman's club is crushingly physically arduous. The long hours stuck, literally, to green benches, listening to tedious and often offensive Tory speeches is mind-numbingly boring. However, such are the archaic rules of the House, you have to sit there if you want to be called to speak. Nevertheless, dedicated SNP MPs hurled themselves into a staccato of speeches, meetings, adjournment debates and private members' bills in a bid to give Scotland a modicum of national recognition in what is effectively the English National Parliament. Hardly anyone on the government benches gives a damn. The Palace of Westminster is not a parliament of the four nations of the United Kingdom. It is a hollow debating chamber dominated by the largely petty concerns of English backbenchers. Meanwhile, a few hundred yards away in Whitehall, the government executive does what the hell it likes, for the most part without scrutiny or oversight. It is against this background that we must judge my old friend and colleague, Margaret Ferrier. First, the obligatory waiver. Margaret's lapse of judgment in going to London when she had shown symptoms of COVID-19 is obvious. 
To then travel back by train when she had tested positive made that mistake a thousand times worse. Thankfully, she does not seem to be seriously ill, as far as I know, and I wish her a speedy recovery. Nevertheless, she did put others in danger of contracting the virus. As a result, her political career is dead in the water, whether she resigns her seat or not. All that said, I feel deeply for Margaret and find much of the virtue signalling and rush to consign her to political outer darkness, both hypocritical and blatantly self-serving. Margaret Ferrier, in my experience, always put the job before her personal convenience. I can perfectly understand her motivation in travelling down to London and Westminster, something few SNP MPs do with any relish. She went there, ill-advised as her decision was, to give her Scottish constituents a vote and to try to hold the incompetent, flailing, useless, arrogant, racist government, and I use the word loosely, of Boris Johnson to account. Personally, I find that somewhat heroic. Then Margaret made her tragic decision to flee home. I've been an MP and know how lonely London can be. Parliamentary days are long and exhausting, yet there is not much relief in taking the bus back to an empty, overpriced and usually minuscule flat for a few hours' kip before starting all over again. Normally, SNP MPs congregate for mutual support and empathy after an inverdating parliamentary day. But the pandemic has limited such interaction. These days, there are fewer SNP members around at Westminster and distancing rules make eating collectively difficult. I can see how self-isolating in lonely London with nobody around to help was a grim prospect Margaret simply couldn't face. Let those without sin cast the first stone. Margaret Ferrier, you will remember, first won her Rutherglen seat in 2015. She lost at the disastrous 2017 election when the SNP's lacklustre campaign and confused message saw half a million natural supporters, mostly working class, fail to come out and vote. But Margaret is a fighter and retook the seat last December. Three election campaigns in barely four years is a tough call, but she put in the hours and delivered Rutherglen and Hamilton West. At no time did anyone in the party call into question Margaret's capacity for hard work or dedication to the cause. No one ever said Margaret Ferrier was in politics for the limelight or a ministerial limo. In fact, Margaret has always been on the left of the party. When she and I were elected to Westminster in 2015, I took the initiative to sound out other socialists and radicals on the left of the Labour Party to coordinate common action against the Tories. This was before Jeremy Corbyn became party leader and the anti-capitalist Labour left. A few dozen MPs at most, by their own estimation, was very isolated. Margaret was the only other SNP member who joined me in these discussions. Most of the Labour members we met with were newly elected like ourselves. Later, they would become key members of Corbyn's shadow team. They included Rebecca Long-Bailey, Richard Bergen and Clive Lewis. But of old-timers on the Labour left, only the visibly ailing Michael Meacher was prepared to talk to the SNP. Our network also included Caroline Lucas, the single Green MP. I mention this because it shows Margaret Ferrier has a political hinterland, a left-wing hinterland, not necessarily shared by everyone in the SNP leadership or Westminster group. Margaret Ferrier is not a flashy orator and therefore never became a media star or a party conference icon, but she was immediately visible at Westminster. Her forte was to turn up at ministerial questions, relentlessly day in and day out, to interrogate and expose bumbling Tory spokespeople. 
It was a technique that required stamina, forensic skills and extreme patience. It never won Margaret bouquets or column inches, but it embarrassed a lot of Tory ministers. Well done, Margaret Ferrier. Margaret is dedicated enough to find a new role in the movement, provided the virtue signallers in our ranks let her. My gripe is the manner in which she is being treated compared with others. For instance, former Finance Secretary Derek Mackay. Derek's public disgrace has obviously caused him deep anxieties. There are media stories suggesting the SNP has paid for counselling. I hope the party and the Westminster leadership are equally solicitous of Margaret, regardless of her transgressions. Also, I can't detect the same party pressure on Derek to resign his seat, which he should, by the way. The feeding frenzy against Margaret has pained me. She's been attacked by fellow MPs who claimed Margaret had somehow sabotaged the party's campaign against the odious internal market bill by diverting the media agenda. I've news for everyone. The UK media are perfectly capable of ignoring SNP activity at Westminster most days of the week. They don't need an excuse. Conclusion? Westminster has its place, but we will only win independence if we convince folk in Scotland which is why the centre of SNP activity must always be here and not in London. We are a movement, not a bunch of social media cheerleaders for elected members. Politics in the 21st century has become intensely personalised. This is not an accident. The neoliberal era represents a concerted attack by the super-rich to remove all institutions, laws and conventions that limit their right to own the earth and make money. The dominant ideology of this era is libertarianism, a vacuous doctrine that brands any collective action by the poor, exploited or powerless as totalitarian. As a diversionary tactic, the media presents politics in terms of personal morality rather than class or national oppression. Margaret Ferrier has fallen foul of this trial by media, but anyone attacking Margaret should beware. Those who don't stand together will be hung separately. The National, Tuesday the 6th of October 2020. Deniston is named 8th coolest neighbourhood in the world by Time Out by Laura Webster. A neighbourhood in the east end of Glasgow has been named 8th coolest in the world in Time Out's annual survey. Deniston is the only UK neighbourhood to make the top 20. More than 38,000 residents of cities across the world were surveyed for the list, questioned on where they most love spending time around their city. This year, Time Out factored in community spirit, as well as food, drink, nightlife and independent culture, in compiling the rankings of the 40 coolest neighbourhoods in the world. Denison was described as feeling like a secluded island in Glasgow's East End, with an influx of students having altered the demographic of the historically working-class neighbourhood in the past decade. Said to have a sense of independence unlike any other corner of this city, community initiatives have included the Zero Waste Market, a refill grocery shop which prepared food boxes during lockdown, and Alexandra Park's Food Forest, they were praised along with coffee shops, pubs and an art gallery. Meanwhile, Barcelona's Esquera de Lixiampo was named the coolest neighbourhood in the world. It was said to have shown incredible community spirit in 2020, organising events such as hydrogel sessions, in which neighbours coordinated mass dance parties on their balconies during lockdown. 
It's community-run Espe Germanentes garden and independent businesses such as Odd Kiosk, the world's first LGBTQ plus magazine kiosk, were also highlighted. Downtown LA took second place, followed by Sham Shu Po in Hong Kong. Dublin's Fibsborough came 27th on the list, while Soho London was 31st. James Manning, international editor of Time Out, said, Glasgow's a fantastic city with cutting-edge culture and nightlife. And right now, Denison is at the cutting edge of the city's cool, with independence popping up and artists brightening up the winding streets. We were really blown away by the amazing initiatives that businesses and locals started at the beginning of the pandemic. It showed there was a real heart in the neighbourhood. He then added, With global travel in disarray this year, our annual list of the world's coolest neighbourhoods is less about planning your next trip and more about celebrating the hotspots that are pointing the way forward for city life. In tough times, neighbourhoods are more important than ever. And these are places where the soul of the city is on full display, thanks to independent businesses, local culture and community initiatives. Consider this list a worldwide shout-out to the strength, spirit and resilience of city dwellers. By Laura Webster. Article from The National, Tuesday 6th of October 2020, Sport. James Morgan, Doomed to Fail, The Curious Case of Scotland the Brave, by James Morgan. In international weeks, it's easy to be consumed by that all-too-familiar sinking feeling, a mixture of apathy and pessimism that washes over you when you realise that there is no domestic football to occupy the mind. Perhaps that sensation has been diminished this time round. After all, Saturday afternoons aren't quite what they used to be. But the threat of a Stakhanovite stalemate against some former Soviet Republic or other footballing backwater remains the same during international weeks. And so the arrival of Thursday's Euro 2020 playoff semi-final against Israel is viewed with trepidation. Last week I had the good fortune to be given an impromptu historical tour of Scottish football's illustrious past, taking in the site of the first and second Hampden Parks, followed by a joint up to Mount Florida to see its current incarnation. It was a sobering reminder that this country was the cradle of the game, that the football the world enjoys today and the tactical variations devised, be it tikataka, total football or the Hungarian way, came from a single seed that was germinated in Scotland. The codification of the rules originated in Scotland. The best players, the ones the English clubs paid handsomely so that they might learn their methods following regular hammerings at club and international level, were Scottish. The migrants who arrived in Glasgow from the Erts and Perts all knew how to play one game because it was that which they, their fathers and grandfathers before them, had played all their lives in church graveyards across the country. As such, Scotland's claim to be the bedrock of the modern game as we know it is indisputable. Yet there seems to be a reticence here to trumpet a truism. The English have never shied away from staking their claim on football as the invention of Old Albion, with its false allusions to the wall game and rugby-style stromashes that involve moving a ball from one part of a town to another. Yet these are nothing to do with football. What emerged in Scotland was a purer form of the game, 
one based on skill and ball mastery. You only need to look around Glasgow to know this. On the wall outside the Hampden Bowling Club you'll find Charles Campbell, a former Queen's Park midfielder whom the history books credit with inventing heading. He is painted onto a mural commemorating Scotland's 5-1 win over England in 1881, a time when such results were commonplace. Also there is Andrew Watson, the first black international footballer, but also a formidable defender of some renown, who had English clubs falling over themselves to sign him. The early proponents of the game advocated a passing game, full of daring do. Another player in that side was James Weir, otherwise known as the Prince of Dribblers, whose speed from one end of the pitch to the other with ball at feet was of particular note at athletic clubs who staged ball dribbling races. Throughout modern football's history, their style and that of their contemporaries echoed in Scotland's teams that followed. For Weir, read Jenky Johnston or Davy Cooper. Joe Jordan and Alan Gilzane were the latter-day equivalents of Campbell while Willie Miller and Alex McLeish were more modern replicas of Watson. Bold names from the past are stamped all over Scotland's footballing history. But the drop-off in talent and what has occurred in the years since France 98 has never been properly explained. Some blame the end of a robust school football system. Others say it is the fault of increasingly more sedentary childhoods. A further argument is that the trend towards signing more foreign players, both in Scotland and in England, has diminished opportunities. Yet top Premier League clubs now boast more Scottish players than at any time since the 1980s. Is it really credible to assume that all self-belief is sucked from the talents who occupy the national team the minute they pull on the navy jersey? As a Northern Ireland supporter who enjoyed watching Michael O'Neill's side go through a period of relative success in recent years, I have at times joked at the expense of family, friends and work colleagues, as each of Scotland's individual failures seems to surpass the last in its ineptitude. O'Neill was once a target for the Scottish Football Association to become manager following the departure of Gordon Strachan, of course. It is worth remembering that he recorded one win in 18 international matches, a run stretching for 33 months after his appointment as Northern Ireland manager in December 2011. I can't imagine anyone, media, supporters or the association itself, would have given O'Neill that kind of bedding-in period as Scotland's head coach. Clark has mentioned that there has been a culture of negativity around his squad and the players have been irritable when questions have been asked of performance. It is a double-edged sword. The players and manager are probably right. They do deserve more time. But then the country has waited 22 years to reach a major final. The first stage in attempting to rectify that statistic comes on Thursday when Scotland renew acquaintances with an Israel side which gave them a second-half runaround at Hamden last month. There has been a temptation to look ahead to next month, when Scotland would travel to either Serbia or Norway for a playoff final that would determine their presence in next summer's final on home soil. Yet Clark's side were lucky to escape with a draw against the Israelis at Hamden. This time only a win, however it is achieved, will suffice. Perhaps a day trip first to Hamden's for Clark's squad and a quick history lesson 
might just do the trick. Ruth Wishart, vitriol's an unwelcome distraction from Independence Goal, an article published in the National of the 5th of October 2020. Quite a lot of folks get death threats on Twitter, not least the comedian Janie Godley, who seems to spend half her days blocking those brave anonymous idiots who threaten her and her family. Twitter seemed pretty relaxed about all that until the US president was in receipt of the same treatment. Cue immediate action and outrage from headquarters. We are living through a tragedy of manners on social media and elsewhere, as was nowhere more evident than this last political week. When Trump tested positive for coronavirus, all of us thought some tasteless thoughts, and most of us had the good grace not to share them. Most of us don't want to wish ill health or death on another human being, no matter their own demonstrable lack of humanity. The Biden campaign swiftly pulled a series of ads which had highlighted the president's hitherto somewhat chaotic response to the pandemic. His political allies and opponents alike posted pious hopes for his recovery. When misfortune strikes, hypocrisy is usually spotted not far behind. Witness the incensed response of the Scottish Tories to Margaret Ferrier's insanely dangerous Round Britain tour, many of whom, though not to be fair, Douglas Ross, had found reasons to take a vow of silence when Don Cummings had inexplicable problems with his day vision. There was a bit of fuss at the weekend at the thought the SNP may have paid for counselling their erstwhile finance secretary, Derek Mackay. Yet, actually, although Mackay displayed a very special kind of stupidity, I don't find the notion of political parties mixing condemnation with compassion a matter for regret. This Inclination to lay about people without fear or factual basis is particularly emblematic of the trans debate. Here I use the term loosely, as people screaming transphobic at anyone endeavouring to have a conversation on the subject is not much of an opener for productive discourse. The most high-profile victim of this treatment has been J.K. Rowling, who wrote about some painful personal experiences in addition to her views about why some women, most particularly previously abused ones, are nervous about possible implications of the now-postponed Gender Recognition Act, GRA. And she was immediately vilified for her trouble. It was instructive to read the comments following a letter of support to her last weekend from assorted celebs. The most vicious came from people who were not themselves trans. Conversely, many trans people were dismayed by the tenor of some comments. Last week I had a long conversation with a trans woman I've known for some years. She's an acquaintance rather than a close friend, but our paths have crossed amiably at various times. 
She admitted candidly that the trans community would be very disappointed if the Scottish Government ditched reform and that she had personally found the existing route to changing her identity cumbersome and humiliating. She also thought that mudslinging from the non-trans sidelines was counterproductive and, as a supporter of independence, that it was not the issue of most concern to her at a crucial juncture in that latter campaign. It wasn't difficult to contrast her thoughtful responses and her own challenging personal journey to the sheer venom so often displayed by those who claim to be defending her rights. At the risk of suffering another bout of intemperate trolling, let me try to explain why so many women have been frightened into silence by the more vitriolic activists, and why so many, let me employ a technical term, have been so royally pissed off by them. Many non-trans women are bewildered at suddenly having to self-describe as cis women or menstruators. After years of having too few female lose at festivals and sports stadium, they find it odd when existing provision is further diminished to provide mixed ones. Few of them are transphobic, as their traducers would have you believe. They just see a difference between biological sex and acquired gender. How to resolve that, giving proper respect to all concerned, is unlikely to follow a stirhedrami. And here is another thing. I can still recite the words of an anti-apartheid song we used on the marches to protest the South African regime. Whether it was first wave or second wave feminism, I'm losing count, I can't be sure, but I was on the march for that too. So it's just a wee bit irritating to be lectured about human rights by those who seem to think the rest of us were home painting our toenails when these battles were being waged on behalf of future generations. I'm sure some of the foot soldiers in the GRA campaign are unaware of the fact that there is an actual playbook which was put together in the States, then imported into Britain, the purpose of which was to show how a campaign, which had been on the fringes of politics, could be inserted into the mainstream media and influence mainstream politics. Now, I'm not for a minute arguing that just because a policy affects a relatively small minority of the electorate, it should not be pursued or publicised. Human rights should always cover all bases, all constituencies and all demographics. What I am concerned about is that this particular policy debate has been captured by a very noisy, often highly intolerant group, which, for the most part, includes very few of the trans community they are allegedly supporting and that the sheer vitriol deployed is proving an unwelcome distraction from the business of securing independence. Here is a tip from someone who has lived through many campaigns for many causes. Bad-mouthing the folks whose views differ from your own is rarely a shortcut to success. 
If you can't manage a civilized conversation, then a period of Hodnjerwisht would be much appreciated. Recorded from the National, 6th of October 2020. The Stone of Destiny by Caroline Logan. A different type of heroine casts her spell. Gemma E. McLaughlin. The Stone of Destiny, a Four Treasures novel by Caroline Logan, published by Cranachan. I love books that take old stories and fairy tales people may know and pay homage by bringing some of their central ideas or themes into new plots. Whatever the genre, I've always found this fascinating and had wondered why I'd never seen this done with any classic Scottish myths. While reading The Stone of Destiny, my hopes were fulfilled. Caroline Logan took creatures and concepts from the past and made them her own in the best way. After finishing this book, I was left with a sense of delight at seeing the culture of the country I've grown up in being honoured so deliberately through the medium of an exciting and beautifully written fantasy novel. This is only the first in a series of novels following the same main characters with the second, The Cauldron of Life, coming out this week. The story is centred on Ailsa, a young woman who in her youth quickly became aware that she wasn't like other youngsters. It is well known that changelings, babies delivered to humans in return for their real children by the mischievous, if not widely considered, monstrous fairies have red birthmarks. Since her childhood, Ailsa had been an outcast in her village, and after the death of her mother, prompting her older brother to be sent away, it became clear that there was no way she would be welcome there. Over the years, she becomes accustomed to loneliness. The constant fight for survival with no one to rely on but herself comes to mean that, despite her best efforts, there's a part of Ilsa that longs for some kind of approval or confirmation she isn't the monster people frightened by her difference had constantly told her she was. The main plot begins when Ilsa meets two Selkies being hunted by people who believe their blood can be used as medicine. The siblings Iona and Harris explain to Ilsa that they've been enlisted by the king to bring him the Stone of Destiny. It is believed that any king crowned while holding the stone will have luck for his reign and it is vital they find it as the king is on his deathbed and his son's coronation is coming soon. The two fear that the mission will present dangers from people such as those they escaped upon meeting Ilsa. They ask for her services as a sort of bodyguard, as having to defend herself for so long has given her formidable skills with the axe she always carries. She agrees to take the job and the three set off on an unforgettable, fantastical adventure. One of my favourite things about this novel is the use of someone like Ilsa as the protagonist. The focus could quite easily have been primarily on Iona, a eloquent, personable and attractive Selkie, but in every way Ilsa was a better fit for her contrast to that stereotype. She is aggressive and not traditionally likeable, which I feel is the very reason the reader is drawn to her. She has been hardened by a lifetime of disappointments and cruelty and doesn't take on her quest because of vague notions of, of heroism and bravery. Instead, she sees it as a chance to prove she's not evil and to win redemption in the eyes of people who never should have cast her aside in the first place. For that reason and many more, this book is simply enchanting. The National Tuesday, the 6th of October, 2020. Former SNP MP Margaret Ferrier went to Glasgow Mass after COVID symptoms. 
by Kathleen Nutt. Margaret Ferrier attended a church service with elderly parishioners after she developed symptoms for coronavirus, it's emerged. The politician, who's been urged by Nicola Sturgeon to stand down for making an 800-mile round train trip with COVID, also gave a reading at the Mass in Glasgow. A report today said Ferrier attended St Mungo's, a Catholic church in the Townhead area of Glasgow, on Sunday, September 27th. This was the day after she took a COVID test and admitted experiencing mild symptoms of the disease. A source said that the £81,932 a year MP sat near the front of the church and made a five-minute reading from the altar. Church services are heavily restricted under coronavirus rules and limits are placed on numbers. The St Mungo's website says no more than 50 people can attend a public mass at the church and places are allocated via a booking system. It says do not enter the church if you are shielding, in self-isolation or have symptoms or feel unwell. The website also notes names and contact details must be provided to track and trace in the event of an outbreak of COVID-19. An insider told the Daily Record that about three quarters of the congregation at church that day were elderly. Father Frank Kevens, one of the priests based at St Mungo's, said, I don't want to say anything about it. He added that St Mungo's follows all safety protocols and takes the public health measures absolutely seriously. Ferrier, elected as the SNP MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West in December, last week admitted she'd travelled while suffering from COVID. In a statement last week, she said she took a test on Saturday, September 26th, after developing coronavirus symptoms. She should have gone into self-isolation, but confessed to travelling to Westminster by train two days later. After receiving a positive result on Monday, September 28th, she made the return train journey back to Glasgow the next morning and exposed fellow passengers to the virus. Ian Blackford, the SNP Westminster leader, withdrew the whip from Ferrier last week after she admitted breaching self-isolation rules, which say anyone with COVID symptoms should stay at home. Ferrier now sits as an independent MP. She's been accused of taking a deliberate gamble with other people's health and putting priests' and worshippers' lives at risk. The Archdiocese of Glasgow said, For the good of the whole community, it's important that anyone who's required to self-isolate does so in accordance with the government's guidance. So anyone in that situation should not attend Mass. It's disappointing if this has not happened, but we'd like to reassure people that we fulfil all the government and church guidelines. It was revealed at the weekend that Ferrier visited a gift shop, a beauty salon and a leisure centre on the same day that she took a coronavirus test. By Kathleen Nutt. From the National Date Wednesday the 7th of October 2020, from the sports section, Celtic star Odin Edward tests positive for COVID-19. By Graham McGarry, senior sports writer. Celtic striker Odson Edwards has tested positive for COVID-19, according to a statement released by the French Football Federation. Edwards was due to take part in the French under-21 sides matches against Liechtenstein and Slovakia this week, but will now sit out those games, and he may now also be a doubt for Celtic's next fixture against Rangers on October 17th. 22-year-old will be required to self-isolate for 10 days from the date of his positive test on Tuesday morning, 
Thus it's unclear whether or not Edward is showing any symptoms of the disease. The FS statement read, Austin Edward will not participate in the France selection sign in France-Slovakia Espoirs matches, counting for the qualifiers for Euro 2021. The result of his COVID-19 test carried out by UEFA this Tuesday morning, October the 6th, having been positive, Austin Edward was sidelined from the group upon the receipt of the results and at the end of training. He was then placed in isolation. All the other tests carried out on the entire delegation, staff members and players, were negative. Celtic manager Neil Lennon had declared himself disappointed with Edward showing in Sunday's game against St Johnson at Park, where he was substituted in the second half of an ineffective showing. Lennon put his apparent malaise down due to the ongoing transfer speculations surrounding the front man. I think he's about three or four more gears to come, Lennon said. That's a question you need to ask him. Again, I was disappointed with his performance. He needs to settle down. Hopefully after tomorrow he will. I can't speculate, but I think it's apparent it's been affecting him. But I can't think for him or put words into his mouth. He's a brilliant player, but we're just not seeing the best of him at the moment. Hopefully he'll calm down once the window shuts and come good for us. And that piece was by Graham McGarry. You're listening to The National, recorded on Wednesday, October 7th. Comment section. Scotland in lockdown. Nicola Sturgeon confirms hospitality closures and curfews. This article is by Laura Webster. The First Minister gave an update to the Scottish Parliament this afternoon as the nation's coronavirus cases, hospitalisations and even deaths continue to increase. Yesterday, Sturgeon ruled out a full March-style lockdown, but stressed action had to be taken to slow the spread of the virus. All licensed premises in Greater Glasgow and Clyde, Lanarkshire, Ayrshire and Arran, Lothian and Forth Valley must close for 16 days, both indoors and outdoors. Takeaways will be permitted. Cafes with no alcohol license can stay open until 6pm. If those areas, snooker and pool halls, indoor bowling alleys, casinos and bingo halls must also close for the same period. Indoor group exercise activities will also be banned for over 18s. Gyms reopen for individual exercise. Outdoor live events will not be permitted in the five regions. People living in those areas should also avoid public transport unless it is absolutely necessary. People living in the five health board areas should not travel out with their health board areas, while people living in other parts of Scotland should not travel to the areas. Nationwide, with the exception of those five health boards, pubs, restaurants and cafes will be able to operate indoors on the restricted hours of 6am to 6pm for the service of food and non-alcoholic drinks only. Bars, pubs, restaurants and cafes can continue to serve alcohol outdoors up to the existing curfew time of 10pm. Hotel restaurants can operate beyond 6pm but only for residents with no alcohol being served. The Scottish Government is also introducing regulations to extend the mandatory use of face coverings in indoor communal settings, including staff canteens and corridors in workplaces. The First Minister set out the reasoning behind the decisions. She told the 
chamber. I know that the vast majority of pubs, bars and restaurants have worked exceptionally hard over the last few months to ensure the safety of their staff and customers. I'm so grateful to them for that. However, the evidence paper published today sets out why these settings present a particular risk. The R number seems to have risen above one approximately three weeks after the hospitality sector opened up. We know that more than one-fifth of people contracted by test and trace report having visited a hospitality setting. That marks sense from what we know about the virus is spread. Indoor environments where different households from different age groups can mix inevitably present a risk of transmission. That risk can be increased in some hospitality premises if good ventilation is difficult and if it is hard to control the movement of people and the presence of alcohol can cause affect people's willingness to physically distance. For all those reasons, significantly restricting licensed premises for 16 days temporarily removes one of the key opportunities the virus has to jump from household to household. It is essential part of our efforts to get the R number significantly below one. The First Minister acknowledged the restrictions will have a significant impact on many businesses. She added, I can announce that we are making available an additional £40 million to support businesses that will be affected by these measures over the next two weeks. We will work with the effective sectors, especially hospitality, in the coming days to ensure that this money provides the most help of those who need it. This article is by Laura Webster. Recorded from the National. 7th of October 2020. Why South Korea Cash just helped this Highland community take over its church. Christine Patterson. A Highland community is to turn a mothballed church into a new community facility thanks to Cash from South Korea. When locals in Seoul heard about the buyout bid for a shuttered kirk in Easter Ross, they raised more than half of the funds needed to transform it into a new social centre. The £54,000 gift is all down to the historic connection forged by one man more than a hundred years ago. Gaelic speaking John Ross was born in Easter Rarike Farm in eighteen forty two and served in several Highland churches before he was sent to China by Scottish United Presbyterian Mission at the age of thirty. A year after his arrival, Ross, who spoke eleven languages, lived on the northern border of a Korea, still closed to outsiders, but developed a strong interest in the country after meeting Korean traders going on to create the first ever primer and grammar guide and the first history of the country in any Western language. His translation of the New Testament into Korean followed in 1887 and another first. It was instrumental in the spread of Christianity there. Ill health forced Ross to return to Scotland in 1910, where he is buried in Edinburgh and remembered with a sculpture on the seafront at Ballantour. The revamped Free Presbyterian Church between that village and Hilton is now to become the John Ross Memorial Scheme thanks to the Pukinyang Chail Presbyterian Church, PCPC, created as a result of his legacy. Members visited the region last summer and met with Maureen Ross of the Seaboard Memorial Hall, SMH, in Ballantour. Maureen, whose father and grandfather built the kirk in the 1960s, had worshipped there and approached the Free Church about a change in ownership when she learned it was to close. She picked up the keys yesterday, telling the National, I didn't have any money so we couldn't afford to buy it, so I just told them what I wanted to do and gave a wee spiel. 
The next thing, they were huddled together speaking in Korean and the interpreter said, don't worry, they're crunching the numbers. I got quite excited. Funding was completed thanks to a 48,500 contribution from Highlands and Islands Enterprise, HIE. It's hoped the new centre, which will include an archive of oral tales about the area, as well as information about the life and work of John Ross, will bring in visitors and benefit the 3,200 local residents. The Pictish-era Hilton of Cabdal stone, which dates to around 800 AD, will be relocated to the site. Ross said, To me it's just wonderful. A lot of people have prayed about this. It's a lovely contented feeling in these days. A contented feeling is a great thing. Paul Harrington of HIE commented, We are delighted to be in a position to help the Seaboard Memorial Hall finalise their funding package to enable them to purchase and refurbish the old Presbyterian Church. The facility will help the community increase tourism levels and provide improved facilities to the Seaboard Villages. Relocating the stone there, and with the history and connection of John Ross with South Korea, more visitors will be enticed to come and see and hear about the history of the area and the people. The National, Wednesday the 7th of October 2020. Nicholas Sturgeon's text to Alex Salmon to be revealed today by Kathleen Nutt. Private WhatsApp messages between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond will be made public today as part of an investigation into the Scottish Government's unlawful pursuit of the former First Minister. A tranche of evidence will be published by the Holyrood Inquiry into the botch process, which cost the taxpayer more than £600,000 in legal fees. The publication will include Sturgeon's submission, which is understood to contain the text exchanges, as well as her account of meetings with Salmond about the case. Part of the Holyrood Committee's remit is to investigate actions taken in relation to the Scottish Ministerial Code, focusing on whether Sturgeon misled MSPs with statements she made about contact with Salmond. The First Minister told Parliament that the first she knew of the government inquiry into allegations of sexual misconduct against Salmond was when he visited her home in Glasgow on April 2nd, 2018, accompanied by Jeff Aberdeen, his former Chief of Staff, and Duncan Hamilton, his solicitor. However, on March 29th, 2018, Aberdeen had met Sturgeon in her Holyrood office, where, according to a statement made before Salmond's trial, the investigation was discussed. It's against parliamentary regulations to carry out party business at Holyrood, and the First Minister denies this account of the meeting. Sturgeon and Salmon met at the 2018 SNP conference in Aberdeen on June 7th, and again at her home on July 14th. They also had two telephone conversations on April 23rd and July 18th. Sturgeons insisted the meetings with Salmond were carried out in her capacity as leader of the SNP. Submissions from Peter Morell, the SNP chief executive, who is married to Sturgeon, and Liz Lloyd, the First Minister's chief of staff, will also be published by the Holyrood Committee. It's understood that in Morell's submission, he admits sending WhatsApp messages that appear to show him supporting pressure being put on police to pursue their criminal investigation of Salmond. The former First Minister was acquitted of all charges at his trial. The Holyrood Inquiry is examining the government's botched handling of complaints against Salmond, 
which resulted in him being awarded £512,000 in costs after it was ruled that the process was unfair and tainted by apparent bias. The Scottish Government spent a further £118,000 on advice from a QC. By Kathleen Nutt. Leslie Riddle. Why Rishi Sunak picked the wrong fight this time. An article by Leslie Riddle, columnist, published in the National of the... 8th of October 2020. It's funny how a political honeymoon can suddenly end. Chancellor Rishi Sunak could do no wrong till he was asked by ITV News if musicians and other creative industry workers should look for alternative employment. He answered, I can't pretend everyone can do exactly the same job as they were doing at the beginning of this crisis. That's why we put a lot of resource into trying to create new opportunities. Okay, he didn't say musicians should retrain, but that's clearly what he meant. And that's what musicians heard. Q. Outrage. Keeper Kayleigh's Donald Shaw said, It's like Norman Tibbetts' get on your bike slogan. Essentially, the message is, your wee hobby is over. Get a real job. Musicians don't expect help. We haven't spent the last 20 years cap in hand. In fact, we've all driven 500 miles to play for 60 quid, because it's just a privilege to perform. Actor Dougie Henshaw put it a tad more forcefully. Is there any Prime Minister retraining programme around? Or Culture Effing Secretary retraining? Or any other member of the Effing Cabinet retraining for F's sake? Jinx. Fearless and outspoken actors, musicians and creatives are the wrong bunch of people to try to reprogramme. Independent-minded and able to exist from gig to gig without the comfort or support of a single employer, they are very unlikely to take a finger-wagging from a former hedge fund manager in cowed silence. Especially artists like Liam Gallagher, who tweeted, So the dopes in government telling musicians and people in arts to retrain and get another job. What? And become massive C.T's like you? Nah, you're alright. Little did Rishi realise he was prodding a musical hornet's nest. So the man with a cheery reputation for handing out cash has tried to retract the whole story. Indeed, he leaned so heavily on ITV they posted this correction to their own story. Update. This article has changed to reflect that the Chancellor's comments were about employment generally and not specifically about the music or art sector. Still, the damage has been done, and not just because of that single televisual blurt. Yesterday, two big musicians' organisations, the Incorporated Society of Musicians, ISM, and Musicians' Movement, launched a new campaign 
It wasn't triggered by Rishi's interview gaffe, but by his winter economy plan announced a fortnight earlier. The lack of any provision for musicians and creatives in that package was the real last straw. According to ONS, the creative industries were the fastest growing sector of the British economy pre-COVID, with an £111 billion turnover, £5 billion in the music industry alone. You'd think Boris would instantly want to put his arms around such economic winners. But the way musicians and creatives work has let them fall neatly between every support system devised by the UK government and has demonstrated why a basic income would be a far fairer system. Musicians aren't usually employed, so no furlough. A musician's income fluctuates wildly from year to year, so if they took time off to write a new album, did no touring and therefore earned very little last year, they got next to nothing in the self-employed grant, which is based on the last 12 months' income. Many young musicians don't qualify for the self-employed grant, though, because they set up companies and live on tiny dividend payments. That doesn't mean they are Rockefellers. It does mean they missed out on all support. But what about the massive £1.57 billion funding package announced by the British government in August? The Arts Recovery Fund, distributed to devolved governments, is welcome, but it's mainly been allocated to bricks and mortar, organisations and venues, and thanks to social distancing, that's only allowed venues to be mothballed without any trickle down to actual musicians or artists. The Scottish Government has tried to help, according to Liam Budd of the Incorporated Society of Musicians, ISM. Each of the devolved nations has allocated funds for affected freelancers, £5 million in Scotland. This best practice from the devolved nations should be adopted in England. Amen. But musicians need more than musical mitigation. The ISM Hash Make Music Work campaign has proposed a freelance performer support scheme to provide a guaranteed fee for performers plus grants for venues to cover the income difference between a full auditorium and the reduced capacity during COVID. They also want a VAT exemption on all cultural tickets and improvements to the self-employed income support scheme. Will this fall on receptive ears in Downing Street? That seems unlikely, since hospitality and sport, especially football, have got to the top of the queue faster, and Tory-supporting tabloids still portray musicians as whining lovies. But even if this package did get the Chancellor's backing, it wouldn't immediately help musicians in Scotland, thanks to our tougher rules about indoor and indeed outdoor entertainment. South of the border, big venues like the Albert Hall are currently selling tickets for December, subject to the usual precautions and one metre social distancing. Why not here? The answer may well be that Nicola Sturgeon wants simple, universal rules that are also tougher in Scotland than south of the border. But that leaves Scotland's musicians and our big music festivals up in the air.
Will Celtic Connections go ahead in January? It's hard to see how it can, and doubtless plans for a digital event are afoot. According to the festival's creative director, Donald Shaw, we are desperately hoping for one metre social distancing to be introduced in Scotland, and if not, to understand why Scotland is different from England and the rest of Europe. I don't have the scientific knowledge to challenge the guidelines, but it's a confusing and frustrating situation. So what can be done? Musicians themselves have some great suggestions. The tireless and award-winning fiddler-composer Duncan Chisholm reached new audiences during lockdown playing a live tune online every morning. He also collaborated with other musicians and poets on Zoom and helped organise an online music festival. But since music is usually streamed free, he's found it hard to make a living in the new normal. Duncan says, I think the answer is for broadcasters to open up their schedules and provide a short-term platform for live music and theatre. There are so many highly skilled musicians, actors, producers, directors and engineers in Scotland desperate for the opportunity to work again. It could be a massive opportunity for broadcasters and artists and audiences who are keen to see and hear new, exciting and engaging work. Donald Shaw thinks this is the ideal moment to challenge the big online music streaming platforms. The trillion dollar companies, Apple, Spotify and Amazon, have made no effort to support the ecosystem of musicians worldwide, despite distributing music that's largely supplied to them free. If they didn't have music, they would struggle to exist, in the same way supermarkets would struggle without farmers. One possibility is that big performers like Beyoncé and Ed Sheeran could ask the big three streaming platforms to support artists with smaller followings. If artists with this profile could encourage some income redistribution, it would make a huge difference to other musicians. The big online platforms style themselves as benefactors showcasing the diversity of music across the world. It's time for them to give a helping hand and behave more like record labels, not online shops. In short, there's a stack of good ideas coming from performers who want to inspire, re-energise and reconnect Scots through their own creative work. Is anyone in the government listening? Article from The National, Thursday 8th of October 2020, Sport. Richard Masters wants to know where football stands as crowd ban continues. Premier League Chief Executive Richard Masters says clubs have been hit by a quadruple whammy over the continued implications of the government's ban on fans at elite sport events. Plans to pilot a limited return from October the 1st were shelved at the end of last month due to stricter lockdown measures in the wake of a surge in coronavirus cases. But Masters has reiterated his belief that the current rules are unfair, not least because of the associated expectation that top-flight clubs will help bail out their EFL counterparts. 
Some entertainment venues are also shaking up for a return, and Masters is unsure where football currently stands. He told the Times, The clubs feel they have been hit with a quadruple whammy. Firstly, that the optimism of October the 1st has been taken away. Secondly, that there will be a sports bailout, but that it wouldn't include football. Thirdly, that the Premier League will be expected to secure the future of the EFL while dealing with the implications of having no fans until possibly March. Finally, the opening up of entertainment arenas within sometimes a couple of miles of football grounds without any roadmap for the return of football supporters. Masters cited the example of the Bundesliga, which has allowed some fans back depending on local virus rates, as one club could potentially follow. The government is managing the country around local conditions, so we have to be flexible in that respect, added Masters. We have been in regular conversation with our German counterparts, and we are aware of how it's working, and how it is not working for some clubs where the numbers are higher. Like everything, you have to start somewhere, and just to do it would be fantastic. Football needs its voice back. We need fans back in the stadiums to provide that missing ingredient. Having fans back, even if it is not exclusively across the league, has given German football a massive boost. Recorded from the National, 8th of October 2020. Lorraine Kelly, mocked by BBC boss for offensive Glaswegian accent, Laura Webster. Lorraine Kelly was mocked for her offensive Glaswegian accent when she worked at BBC Scotland in the 1980s, the TV presenter has claimed. The presenter spoke candidly about her experience as a researcher at The Broadcaster decades ago, saying she was rejected from a more senior position. Speaking to the Blank podcast, Kelly said, I got called into the boss's office and I thought he was going to give me a job as a reporter because that's what I really wanted to do. But he told me my accent was terrible, my accent was offensive, my Glasgow accent. So when I got told that, I just applied for a job at TVAM. And luckily the boss was Australian and didn't really care how people spoke. The presenter told the podcast she believes it's important to have an array of accents in broadcasting. The host went on to say that back in the 1980s, no one spoke like me or Eamon Holmes or lovely Ant and Dick. Kelly's added, Everybody spoke a sort of quite affected posh way, but that's all changed now, and I think for the better, I definitely do. Kelly has opened up about receiving criticism for her accent early in her career before. Last year she told of how, while working at BBC Scotland, a boss said she would never make it because of how she spoke. The six-year-old has had a long TV career, working on GMTV, ITV Breakfast, Daybreak, and now her own eponymous morning show, Lorraine. Thursday, October the 8th, 2020. Why Rishi Sunak picked the wrong fight this time, by Leslie Riddick. It's funny how a political honeymoon can suddenly end. Chancellor Rishi Sunak could do no wrong till he was asked by ITV News if musicians and other creative industry workers should look for alternative employment. He answered, I can't pretend everyone can do exactly the same job they were doing at the beginning of this crisis. That's why we put a lot of resource into trying to create new opportunities. Okay, he didn't say musicians should retrain, but clearly that's what he meant, and it's what the musicians heard. Cue outrage. Kappa Cayley's Donald Shaw said, 
It's like Norman Tebbett's Get On Your Bike slogan. Essentially, the message is your wee hobby's over. Get a real job. Musicians don't expect help. We haven't spent the last 20 years cap in hand. In fact, we've all driven 500 miles to play for 60 quid just because it's a privilege to perform. Actor Dougie Henshaw put it a tad more forcefully. Is there any Prime Minister retraining programme around? Or culture effing secretary retraining? Or any other member of the effing cabinet retraining? F's sake. Jings. Fearless and outspoken, actors, musicians and creatives are the wrong bunch of people to try to reprogram. Independent-minded and able to exist from gig to gig without the comfort or support of a single employer, they're very unlikely to take a finger-wagging from a former hedge fund manager in cowed silence. Especially artists like Liam Gallagher, who tweeted, So, the dopes in government telling musicians and people in arts to retrain and get another job. What, and become massive... Like you? Nah, you're all right. Little did Rishi realise he was prodding a musical hornet's nest. So the man with a cheery, cultivated reputation for handing out cash has tried to retract the whole story. Indeed, he leaned so heavily on ITV, they posted this correction to their own story. Update. This article has changed to reflect that the Chancellor's comments were about employment generally and not specifically about the music or art sector. Still, the damage has been done, and not just because of that single televisual blurt. Yesterday, two big musicians' unions organisations, the Incorporated Society of Musicians and Musicians' Movement, launched a new campaign. It wasn't triggered by Rishi's interview gaffe, but by his winter economy plan announced a fortnight earlier. The lack of any provision for musicians and creatives in that package was the real last straw. According to ONS, the creative industries were the fastest growing sector of the British economy pre-COVID, with a £111 billion turnover, £5 billion in the music industry alone. You'd think Boris would instantly want to put his arms around such economic winners. But the way musicians and creatives work has let them fall neatly between every support system devised by the UK government, and has demonstrated why basic income would be a far fairer system. Musicians aren't usually employed, so no furlough. A musician's income fluctuates wildly from year to year. So if they took time off to write a new album, did no touring, and therefore earned very little last year, they got next to nothing in the self-employed grant, which is based on the last 12 months' income. Many young musicians don't qualify for the self-employed grant, though, because they set up companies and live on tiny dividend payments. It doesn't mean they're Rockefellers. It does mean, though, that they've missed out on all support. And what about the massive £1.57 billion funding package announced by the British government in August? The Arts Recovery Fund, distributed to devolved governments, is welcome, but it's mainly been allocated to bricks and mortar, organisations and venues. And thanks to social distancing, that's only allowed venues to be mothballed without any trickle-down to actual musicians or artists. The Scottish government's tried to help, according to Liam Budd of the Incorporated Society of Musicians, each of the devolved nations has allocated funds for affected freelancers, £5 million in Scotland. This best practice from the devolved nations should be adopted in England. But the musicians need more than musical mitigation. The ISM Make Music Work campaign has proposed a freelance performer support scheme to provide a guaranteed fee for performers, plus grants for venues to cover the income difference between a full auditorium and the reduced capacity during COVID. 
They also want a VAT exemption on all cultural tickets and improvements to the self-employment income support scheme. Will this fall on receptive ears in Downing Street? It seems unlikely, since hospitality and sport, especially football, have got to the top of the queue faster. And Tory-supporting tabloids still portray musicians as whining loveys. But even if this package did get the Chancellor's backing, it wouldn't immediately help musicians in Scotland, thanks to our tougher rules about indoor and indeed outdoor entertainment. South of the border, big venues like the Albert Hall are currently selling tickets for December, subject to the usual precautions and one metre social distancing. So why not here in Scotland? The answer may well be that Nicola Sturgeon wants simple universal rules that are also tougher in Scotland than south of the border. But that leaves Scotland's musicians and our big music festivals up in the air. Will Celtic Connections go ahead in January? It's hard to see how it can, and doubtless plans for a digital event are afoot. According to the festival's creative director, Donald Shaw, we're desperately hoping for one metre social distancing to be introduced in Scotland, and if not, to understand why Scotland's different from England and the rest of Europe. I don't have the scientific knowledge to challenge the guidelines, but it is confusing and frustrating. So what can be done? Musicians themselves have some great suggestions. The tireless and award-winning fiddler-composer Duncan Chisholm reached new audiences during lockdown, playing a live tune online every morning. He's also collaborated with other musicians and poets on Zoom and helped organise an online music festival. But since music is usually stream-free, he's found it hard to make a living in the new normal. Duncan says, I think the answer is for broadcasters to open up their schedules and provide a short-term platform for live music and theatre. There are so many highly skilled musicians, actors, producers, directors and engineers in Scotland desperate for the opportunity to work again. It could be a massive opportunity for broadcasters and artists and audiences too, who are keen to see and hear new exciting and engaging work. Donald Shaw thinks this is the ideal moment to challenge the big online music streaming platforms. He said, The trillion dollar companies, Apple, Spotify and Amazon, have made no effort to support the ecosystem of musicians worldwide, despite distributing music that's largely supplied to them for free. If they didn't have music, they would struggle to exist in the same way supermarkets would struggle without farmers. One possibility is that big performers like Beyonce and Ed Sheeran, could ask the big three streaming platforms to support artists with smaller followings. If artists with this profile could encourage some income redistribution, it would make a huge difference to other musicians. The big online platforms style themselves as benefactors, showcasing the diversity of music across the world. It's time for them to give a helping hand and behave more like record labels, not online shops. In short, there's a stack of good ideas coming from performers who want to inspire, re-energise and reconnect Scots through their own creative work. Is anyone in government listening? By Leslie Riddick. David Pratt, an independent Scotland as the new Vienna. It's not a pipe dream. An article by David Pratt, Foreign Affairs Editor, published in the National of the 8th of October 2020. You'll find no argument from me that those who desire Scottish independence must remain more focused now than ever. 
almost daily here in this newspaper. Many of you, our readers, are quick to remind columnists like myself of that. As a freelance journalist specialising in foreign affairs and tasked with commenting, reporting on and analysing our troubled world for the pages of the National and other publications, I really value readers' comments and thoughts on what I write. I know my colleagues do likewise. Only by exchanging such views in a reasoned and reasonable manner can we improve our understanding of our turbulent world and the forces that shape it, as well as their impact on all our lives here in Scotland and beyond. Such an informed position is also vital in determining how we respond as individuals and society to the pressing issues that often affect us all, no matter who we are or where we come from. The COVID-19 pandemic is an obvious point in case. Let me be frank here then and say I often find it disappointing when I hear some try to prove their unquestioning loyalty and commitment to the indie cause by dismissing the need for Scotland to think beyond independence. Just recently, after posting a message on social media about the plight of ordinary people in certain war-torn lands, one self-confessed indie supporter responded almost instantly to me by pointing out that people living in Scotland's schemes or deprived areas don't care about what happens in such places. The Scottish Government, the respondent insisted, needs to recognise this and first and foremost deal with things on its doorstep if it has any chance of winning doubters over to the independence cause, he argued. Let's get Indy done, then we can think about the rest of the world, goes the thinking of those who make such a case. Some have even suggested to me that talking up Scotland's potential future role in the international community is nothing but a pipe dream espoused only by certain careerist SNP politicians. All I can say to that line of thinking is that alongside our seemingly unerring gift for stealing defeat from the jaws of victory, Scottish self-loathing is another of the traits we could do without right now. Certainly from a brutally honest tactical perspective, I fully understand why someone would insist independence and achieving it must right now be the only thing at the forefront of our strategic thinking. But I'm not sure it's wise or indeed possible to separate the campaign to gain independence from the preparedness vital to run our own affairs once it has been achieved. Moreover, I'm also not sure how comfortable or proud I would be of any government so myopic and cynical as not to look beyond its own immediate electoral needs and political doorstep. An independent Scotland, I've always felt, needs to raise the bar, not lower it in terms of its international outlook. As a nation, I firmly believe we are better and more outward-looking than some would have us believe. Regular readers will certainly know that I've long been passionate about and argued the need for Scotland as an independent nation taking its rightful place and making its contribution to our global family of nations. 
In aspiring to do just that, however, it's time we faced up to a few home truths. The first is that, irrespective of the need to stay focused on gaining independence, we need simultaneously to continue identifying and understanding the bigger picture. In other words, we must not neglect the development of those foreign affairs, diplomatic and other skill sets that will be vital if we are to make what might be a small but significant contribution to the international community. In fact, it's precisely those very qualities from which Scotland as a sovereign state might reap considerable dividends both politically and economically. That much was made clear by former SNP Deputy Leader Angus Robertson last month, when, in an op-ed article, he drew parallels between Scotland and Austria. As a country the same size as Scotland, Austria has made its capital, Vienna, a centre for international diplomacy. Translate this into jobs and investment, and the tills ring up with an impressive annual total of 585 million euros in staff costs, mission overheads and accommodation. And diplomatic missions and summits are only one aspect of Vienna's go-to reputation. International conferences are another and said to generate another £11 billion a year. If it's good enough for Vienna, I say, then why not Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen or Dundee? Writing in this newspaper last week, Robertson also highlighted how 17 years ago Scotland became the venue for bilateral face-to-face -face meetings between members of parliament from Armenia and Azerbaijani during efforts to mediate over the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Sadly, once again, these two countries find themselves in the throes of conflict. But what is to stop an independent Scotland acting as a venue for such diplomatic mediation in the future for similar warring parties? Would it not be the smart thing to do right now in preparing the ground for such roles in the arena of diplomacy and reconciliation, not to mention international conferences from which Scotland could benefit? This is no pipe dream. It's perfectly doable, and travelling widely as I have over the years as a correspondent, I've frequently been reminded of the goodwill that exists towards Scotland should it choose to present itself as a place to conduct such diplomacy. The more we reach out, show ourselves to be open-minded, tolerant, willing to engage and display maturity in handling our affairs, the more other nations will likely respond in kind. This is a win-win scenario for all. Let's not squander the marvellous talents, abilities, reputation and ambition we have. Yes, all shoulders must be to the independence campaigning wheel right now, but equally it would be remiss of us not to recognise the immense possibilities and opportunities that exists in what follows. Without getting ahead of ourselves, now is precisely the time to prepare for that too. Article from The National, Thursday the 8th of October, 2020, 
Sport. Ireland include six uncapped players in 35-man squad for Six Nations conclusion. From the Press Association. Ireland have named a 35-man squad for the final two rounds of the 2026 Nations, which will resume on 24th of October. Six uncapped players are included for the games against Italy at the Aviva Stadium and the trip to France on October the 31st. Head coach Andy Farrell said, There has been a huge effort right across Irish rugby to ensure that the professional game could return safely and that work is greatly appreciated by the national management. We have protocols in place to safeguard the welfare of the players and staff and are looking forward to completing the Six Nation Championships. We have two competitions to play in over the coming months, but we'll focus first on a strong finish to the Six Nations Championships. The return to rugby has not been without its challenges, as some players have suffered injury setbacks, and there has been limited playing opportunities ahead of a busy and exciting international window. We will be closely monitoring the form and fitness of players competing in the Guinness Pro 14 over the coming weeks. Ulster scrum half John Cooney has missed out despite appearing off the bench in Ireland's three matches in the tournament earlier this year. Farrell's men are currently fourth in the table, but only four points off joint leaders England and France and with a game in hand over their title rivals. Ed Byrne, Shane Daly, Hugo Keenan and Jameson Gibson Park will join up with the national team squad for the first time, while Harry Byrne, Craig Casey, James Lowe, James Tracy and Finine Wycherley will train with the squad next week at the High Performance Centre in Dublin. Recorded from the National, 8th of October 2020. Beauty spot near Loch Lomond to be made safer with £2.7 million revamp, Laura Webster. A gorge popularised by TV series Outlander, is to be made safer and more accessible with a £2.7 million revamp. A visitor centre and car park will be built at Finnick Glen near Loch Lomond, while a path network and bridges will be created to make it easier to explore the site safely. It is estimated around 70,000 people a year visit the Glen, known for its 70-foot gorge and the Devil's Pulpit Rock, which has left the ground in poor condition while some visitors put themselves at risk to take photos. With no car park, dozens of cars are often parked along the side of the narrow road, causing difficulties for emergency services and local residents. Architects and planning consultants Bell Ingram Design said councillors approved the plans this week after planning officials initially recommended refusal on the grounds that the proposals would significantly irrevocably impact the unique landscape of the Finnick Glen natural environment. Ian Cram, director of Bell Ingram Design, welcomed the decision to approve the changes at the site, which is owned by farmers David and Carol Young. He said, One major problem was road safety, because of the number of cars going to visit the site, and also the safety of the gorge itself, where the emergency services are called out quite often to help people. There is no car park, and in the glen, the ground is getting trampled. It's almost like there have been cattle going through it if it was a wet day, as it gets churned up by the volume of people. So our proposal is to build a proper path network that will cope with a number of people, robust fencing that people can lean on, and bridges over the gorge so people can safely look as people have a tendency to lean over to take photos. Graham said the plans would be in keeping with the setting, 
which she described as being like a lost world with ferns and mosses creating a land that time forgot feel. He said, We want to give it an aged and slightly Victorian feel. It is not known when work on the project at the site in the Stirling Council area will start. David Young said the Finnick Glen Visitor Centre development will allow visitors to access the Glen safely and safeguarding this stunning environment for future generations to enjoy. In the longer term, we hope to create a sustainable business and generate rural jobs, something that's never been more important as our economy struggles to survive during the COVID-19 pandemic. The National, Friday the 9th of October 2020. Holyrood asks for immigration powers to suit separatist agenda, says Kevin Foster. By Xander Richards. A UK minister has rejected calls for Scotland to be given control over immigration, saying that Holyrood is only pursuing the issue to suit its agenda of separatism. Parliamentary Undersecretary Kevin Foster also claimed that devolving powers on immigration could create confusion within the UK. In reply, the SNP told The National that an immigration system tailored to Scotland's need is a necessity, given the stark difference in social attitudes north and south of the border. They also warned that Tory post-Brexit immigration plans could cost Scotland up to £10 billion per year. Foster, who represents Torbay and Devon for the Conservatives, said the UK government is focused on establishing an immigration system that provides success for Scotland. Westminster is setting up a new points-based immigration system that will come into effect after the EU transition period ends. With some caveats, people seeking employment in the UK will have to have a job offer for a position paying at least £25,600 in order to qualify. Foster said he's been directly engaging with organisations in Scotland about the changes. He told the PA news agency, Our focus will be an immigration system that provides success for Scotland, that supports the strategy for the wider labour market, including getting people back into work who've been affected by COVID-19, not trying to separate the United Kingdom and put a border at Berwick. We don't think that having different immigration systems in different parts of the United Kingdom, literally putting an economic migration border across this island, would be a way of doing that. It would produce confusion. Rejecting calls for the devolution of immigration, he added. Just doing things on political boundaries in terms of the Scottish government to suit its agenda of separatism, it's not for us. Scottish ministers and leading figures in the care sector have called for more staff to be eligible for the new health and care visa. But Foster argued the industry should not see bringing in workers from overseas as a magic bullet to deal with recruitment problems. He also said senior care workers would still qualify to come into the UK under the new points-based proposals. Foster added... I think the lessons that have really come out over the last few months across the UK include the fact we do not need to increase the value of working in social care. We need to have proper career development plans and rewarding packages offered to staff. He said the UK Migration Advisory Committee had pointed directly to the fact that supermarket workers stacking shelves on the shop floor are being paid and valued more by those who work in our social care system. Adding this is something the government need to work with employers on. Reacting to Foster's comments, SNP MSP George Adams said Westminster's plans to cut immigration across the UK would cost Scotland billions every year. He told The National, Today we've seen a poll that suggests two-thirds of Brits want to end freedom of movement. But we know the opposite is true for Scotland. 
by Xander Richard. The National, Friday the 9th of October 2020. Edinburgh no-to-yes candidate pulls out of SNP selection race by Kathleen Nutt. A no-voter who moved to yes and was hoping to get elected as an SNP MSP next year has withdrawn from the party's internal contest. Michael Sturrock was seeking to win the party's nomination and take the SNP target seat of Edinburgh Southern, currently held by Labour's Daniel Johnson, at the May 2021 poll. But he's left the race after failing to pass the party's vetting procedure. He said the party's committee had told him he lacked sufficient campaigning experience. Sturrock said he was disappointed but will be giving his support to the winning candidate to help ensure his party wins the Labour seat. I have learned that the SNP Vetting Committee has chosen not to progress my candidacy for selection in Edinburgh Southern, he told the National. My campaign sought to rally the growing No to Yes movement and offer our party the opportunity to select a candidate who reflects the important sea change taking place across Scotland. The Vetting Committee concluded, however, that my local campaign experience was not sufficient to be a prospective candidate for our party. Of course, it's disappointing, but I wish those standing well. He added, Overall, this experience has been hugely positive. I've been encouraged to hear from so many others around Scotland, of all political persuasions, who've become convinced that the positive vision of independence in Europe is the best path for Scotland. Ultimately, this campaign is neither about me nor my parliamentary ambitions. We're on the cusp of taking our first steps as an independent nation, and it's fundamental that we bring as many people along with us as we can. The voices of those who previously voted no must be heard and engaged with in respectful dialogue. The 26-year-old joined the SNP in 2018 in the aftermath of the EU referendum and is a member of the party's Newington branch. He works as head of public affairs for a business trade association. His candidacy was endorsed by MPs John Nicholson and Stuart MacDonald. Sturrock said, The No to Yes movement is welcoming more and more people every day. Our friends in Europe see this, and I was glad to see the campaign featured in some of Europe's most read newspapers, as well as our national and local press. So while my prospective candidacy ends here, my campaign for a positive vision of independence and efforts to advance the No TS movement does not. Catriona MacDonald, Alison Dickey and Doug Thompson are the remaining contenders in Edinburgh Southern. A senior SNP source said, Michael's a huge talent for the future in the SNP and independence movement. His personal story as someone who's moved from no to yes is exactly what will help a great many other people make the same journey. SNP vetting is there to ensure candidates have enough campaign experience, and Michael will get that by playing an active part in next year's Scottish Parliament elections. We look forward to him running in the future. He will make an excellent candidate and parliamentarian. By Kathleen Nutt. The National, Friday the 9th of October 2020. Why taking Westminster to court over Brexit bill may be a win-win by Joanna Cherry. It's 20 years this week since Donald Dewar, Scotland's first ever First Minister, died unexpectedly while still in office. As we mark the anniversary of his untimely death, is his devolution project fatally damaged? And if so, what if anything can be done about it? 
Dewar's masterly scheme that every power which was not specifically reserved to Westminster should be devolved to the Scottish Parliament was reflected in the Scotland Act 1998 after a ringing endorsement from voters who voted by three to one to support reconvening Scotland's Parliament. With such architecture underpinning it, there was great confidence there was meaningful home rule rather than the pathetic sop Scots had been offered in 79. Donald Dewar's magnificent patriotic speech at the official opening of the new parliament reflected this confidence and the considerable historical significance of the occasion. As did Winnie Ewing's magisterial declaration that the Scottish Parliament adjourned on the 25th of March in the year 1707 is hereby reconvened. It's therefore particularly poignant that 20 years after Donald Dewar's death, as the UK Internal Market Bill makes its way to the statute book, we're witnessing the destruction of his plan. Whilst under the Scotland Act, Westminster always retained the power to make laws for Scotland, it was understood that it would not normally do so in relation to devolved matters without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. Until Brexit came along, this was a convention that was honoured and even put on a statutory footing in the aftermath of the independence referendum. What's so outrageous about the Internal Market Bill is its introduction of broad cross-cutting powers, which will allow UK ministers to enforce internal market provisions across devolved areas. In addition, the bill reserves state aid to Westminster, despite the devolved administration's insistence that it be devolved and UK ministers are also getting wide-ranging powers to spend in important devolved areas. To date, it was understood they would spend only in respect to preserved powers, and normally for devolved powers, financial transfers to the devolved administrations would go through the block allocation governed by the Barnett formula. This, in short, is why the bill constitutes a power grab rather than a power surge. On Wednesday night, I took part in a webinar on the implications of the Internal Market Bill for the rule of law. Although hastily organised by the International Bar Association Human Rights Institute, it was hugely overscribed, with a thousand watching online, another thousand unable to get on the call. It's now available to watch at ibannet.org. I was asked to speak about the impact of the bill on devolution. I argued that what we're seeing is a rebalancing of the constitutional settlement in the United Kingdom, with the clear delineation between reserved and devolved powers swept away. Not only does this fly in the face of the promises made to secure a no vote in the independence referendum, but it also flies in the face of the steps taken by Westminster to secure those promises in the Scotland Act 2016, which enshrined the Sewell Convention and entrenched the Scottish Parliament as a permanent part of the UK's constitutional arrangements by providing it could not be abolished save by a decision of the people of Scotland voting in a referendum. So the bill has implications not just for devolution, but for the union between Scotland and England. It's important that we don't just look at that constitutional relationship through the prism of devolution. It has wider underpinnings, including the Treaty of Union. As I was speaking, MSPs were voting overwhelmingly to withhold legislative consent to the bill. However, as we know from the bitter experience of the last few years, that won't stop Westminster proceeding with it. In fact, the only hope now of changing the bill is in the House of Lords. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here if I say the focus of their attention will not be devolution, but rather the rule of law implications of the bill. Rather like the UK Supreme Court to date, the House of Lords has seemed relatively disinterested in defending the devolution settlement. 
When the Scottish Government intervened in Gina Miller's first case about the circumstances in which Article 50 could be triggered, the Supreme Court ruled that the Scottish Parliament did not need to be consulted and that despite its statutory enshrinement, the Sewell Convention does not give rise to legally enforceable obligations. This has proved to be an important setback, as throughout the Brexit process, the UK Government has ignored the Convention with impunity. The independent think tank, the Institute for Government, said... The Seoul Convention has been broken by Brexit. Now it seems so has devolution. What can be done about it? At the IBA seminar, many felt the only way the Internal Market Bill can be stopped is by court action. But they were worried this would simply feed the Tories' anti-lawyer and judge rhetoric. Already in Northern Ireland, citizens concerned about the impact the bill will have on the fragile peace process secured by the Good Friday Agreement have instructed solicitors. I was asked if I would be crowdfunding to take proceedings in Scotland and replied that any legal action to defend the devolved settlement would be for the Scottish Government. Mike Russell has said that legal action has not been ruled out and there might be a range of legal actions open to the Scottish Government. The Supreme Court's dismissive ruling on Sewell poses a problem, but the Supreme Court can overrule itself and distinguished commentators have argued that its previous decision was wrong. As the Scottish Government decides whether to litigate over the bill, such action should not be seen as a distraction from the goal of independence. Victory could be useful in preserving the ability of the Scottish Parliament to protect standards, for example, in the field of agriculture and the environment, and alignment with the EU as we move towards independence. Should the case be lost, it would simply be another demonstration that it's only with independence that Scottish voters can get the policies for which they vote by Joanna Cherry. The National, Friday the 9th of October 2020. The Alex Salmond Inquiry, What the First Minister is Alleged to Have Done, by Kathleen Nutt. Part of the inquiry set up to find out what happened in the Scottish Government's flawed investigation into complaints against Alex Salmond looks at the First Minister's actions. So what is it that Nicola Sturgeon's alleged to have done wrong? There are questions about whether the First Minister followed proper procedure when she met Salmond and discussed the government investigation into allegations against him. One aspect of the matter is whether she should have kept records of the conversations as per the ministerial code. The other is whether she misled Parliament over what she knew and when. The First Minister maintained she first heard of the government's investigation when Salmon told her at a meeting in her home on April the 2nd, 2018. She first told MSPs this was the case in January last year. Evidence was presented to the Salmon trial this spring that says she discussed the case with Jeff Aberdeen, Salmon's former chief of staff, four days earlier in a parliamentary office. In her written submission to the Holyrood Inquiry, the First Minister said she forgot about this meeting, which took place on March 29th, 2018, during a busy day, she said. At First Minister's questions yesterday, she argued she could see why people might raise an eyebrow at her account, but said her memory of the meeting could have been overwritten in her mind by the one she had with Salmon himself three days later. She said this meeting was when Salmon presented the details of the complaints against him and aspects of his response. She said this meeting was seared in her mind. So what is the ministerial code and what's the ultimate sanction if it's broken? It is the code of conduct for ministers and law officers. It sets the standard of behaviour expected from members of the government. 
Its state's ministers who knowingly mislead the parliament will be expected to offer their resignation to the first minister. And what's the difference between party and government business? Government money, which is raised through taxes to run the country, should not be used to help a political party. This includes the banning of government property being used for party meetings. The First Minister would not be allowed to discuss party manners in her ministerial office in Parliament, which means the meeting with Aberdeen would break the rules if it were to discuss party business. She said her meetings with Salmond, the first of which was arranged via Aberdeen, were in her capacity as party leader. This means, she says, that she did not have to make any official record of them. By Kathleen Nutt. And that was this week's Glasgow Times. Thanks for listening.